Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And this is Elizabeth Norman, publisher of Connecticut Explored. This is the summer of novels inspired by Connecticut's historic places, as listeners to Grading the Nutmeg's last episode well know. In this episode, we hear how one of Connecticut's beach colonies inspired Elizabeth Polliner's novel, As Close to Us as Breathing, published in 2016. But there's a twist. Though beach colonies all along Connecticut's shoreline offered a summer of swimming, beachcombing, and family fun, they were historically segregated by religion and ethnicity. In this episode, we'll be transported to Connecticut's so-called Bagel Beach, a place you may have first learned of in episode 23 of the Great American Road Trip. We'll hear the history of Bagel Beach and how it inspired a great summer beach read in this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. It's August here in Connecticut, and fall will be here all too soon. Today's podcast is going to take us to the Connecticut shoreline, that 253-mile-long stretch of oceanfront along the Long Island Sound. And to be exact, we're going to Bagel Beach in the Woodmont section of the town of Milford. Award-winning novelist Elizabeth Polliner will describe her family's connection to Bagel Beach and how it inspired her novel As Close to Us as Breathing, published in 2016. Polliner recently gave a book talk hosted by the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Hartford, and we thank them and the author for allowing us to record her for this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Amazon states on their website, quote, Elizabeth Polliner is a masterful storyteller, a brilliant observer of human nature, and in as close to us as breathing, she has created an unforgettable meditation on grief, guilt, and the boundaries of identity and love, unquote. As you may have guessed, Bagel Beach is the nickname for an area that allowed Jews to buy land and build summer cottages. Polliner's book is a multi-generational family saga about the long-lasting reverberations of one tragic summer in 1948. A small stretch of the Woodmont, Connecticut shoreline has been a destination for Jewish families since the 1920s. As in real life, in Polliner's novel, Sisters Ada, Vivi, and Beck assemble at their beloved family cottage, the children in tow and weekend-only husbands who arrive each Friday in time for the Sabbath meal. During the weekdays, freedom reigns, but when a tragic accident occurs on the sisters' watch, a summer of hope and self-discovery transforms into a lifetime of atonement and loss for members of this close-knit clan. But before we hear from Polliner, let's talk about vacationing in Connecticut. Jewish visitors, vacationers, and tourists often face discrimination in accommodations. They also needed destinations that could provide meals that followed their religious dietary restrictions and also had houses of worship available. Before there was a Bagel Beach in the 1900s, Jewish workers and their families from New York City came as summer boarders to Connecticut farms. They were looking for rest and relaxation in the Connecticut countryside. Over time, many Jewish farmers developed thriving resorts in central Connecticut, Colchester, Moodus, Lebanon, and East Haddam. 
This area became known as the Connecticut Catskills. And later, near Danbury, Connecticut, a cottage development was started in 1950 by Jewish New York City firefighters who developed the Lake Wabika Association on a freshwater lake. Grammy Award-winning artist Carol King's father, Sid Klein, was the president, and 250 cottages were built around 1952. There's a Carol Street in the development named after the singer. But Jewish families from Connecticut also wanted the beach experience, and predominantly Jewish beach colonies developed in New London, Old Lyme, and Woodmont in the 1920s. Here's Elizabeth Polliner describing the undercurrent of anti-Semitism in the novel. Well, that's really in the book, that, that it was a time, the 30s and the 40s, um, the whole Milford coastline really was segregated um, into communities, beach communities, Morningside is one, there's other names for them, um, defined by who lives there, and who lived there would be one kind of person, um, essentially, not, not 100%, but essentially. So you'd have um, the Protestant beaches, then you'd have the Italian Catholic beaches, not, not mixed Catholic, Italian Catholic, Irish Catholic, maybe a couple of those, because there's a large Connecticut population. And um, within Woodmont, um, there was actually a mixture, but there was a section of Woodmont um, for the Jewish population. So to me, that's very poignant, because it's not even the whole mile and a half, that's not very long, of Woodmont. It's, it's a corner of Woodmont. That's the Jewish section. And in, in, it was, it was uh, as I wrote in the book, it's, it's part, um, it, there's a comfort level, you know, in a world that's defining everybody by who they are in this way, ethnicity, um, there's some comfort being with your own people. But there's necessity, too, because the world is closed um, to Jews in many ways. Covenants existed in communities, and they couldn't just go anywhere. So, um, so that's a big part of it. And 1948 is, of course, um, part of the reason I said it in 48 of all years. It's, it's just, just beyond the Holocaust. And, of course, Israel has become its own state. And there's reason, I thought, for a bit of optimism that may not have been there in other years. Just enough, just enough confidence to kind of set these characters free in a way that they may not have been. Uh, in years before, and indeed during the war years, um, not so many people went to Woodmont. There was a kind of restraint. Um, my understanding, my research um, was showed that. So I didn't deal with gas. What's that? It was gas. Yeah. Four. That's right. Rationing and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. So yeah, very much. And of course, these relationships between um, Beck and Tyler. Uh, Jew and a Catholic, and Howard and Megan O'Donnell, Jew and a Catholic, are secret, you know, because um, the families are not welcoming of this. The area that became known as Bagel Beach developed a small shopping area with a Jewish bakery, deli, diner, and variety store. It also has the only summer synagogue known in Connecticut. I visited the Hebrew congregation of Woodmont with architectural historian Dave Ransom in the 1990s when a survey of historic synagogues statewide was being conducted. This tiny, charming, clabbered building was built in 1926 as a summer synagogue. Above the cornice of the facade is a swan's neck pediment with the Star of David as its central motif. Other summer houses of worship 
for Christian denominations exist, including the Pequot Chapel in New London, which was constructed in the 1870s for the Pequot Beach Colony. Unheated and uninsulated, these small houses of worship were just meant to be used during the summer months. They were constructed during a time when families would commonly stay for the entire summer and husbands would come on the weekends. Woodmont's Jewish congregation formed in 1920 and actively raised funds for the synagogue. With funds in hand in 1926, construction began. Benjamin Rosenthal of Meriden donated the land. Architect Charles Abramowitz designed it, and builder Jacob Schiff had it ready for occupancy in 1927. The congregation prospered and the services were held from July to the beginning of September, with 30 to 40 worshipers on a Friday night and 50 to 75 on a Saturday morning. A social hall was added next door in 1947. This high point neatly corresponds to the novel setting in 1948. Here's Estelle Kafer, Executive Director of the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Hartford, introducing the author and the novel. Elizabeth is not only the author of As Close to Us as Breathing, but has also written Mutual Life and Casualty, a novel and stories, What Do You Know in Your Hands, a poetry collection, and Sudden Fog, a poetry chapbook. Her short fiction and poetry have appeared widely in literary journals. She is a recipient of seven individual artist grants from the DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities, fiction fellowships to the Wesleyan and Sewanee Writers Conferences, and numerous artist residences. She teaches creative writing in the MFA and undergraduate programs at Hollins University, which is in Roanoke, Virginia, where she's an associate professor. The novel was named as a finalist for the 2017 Library of Virginia People's Award. It was also voted Amazon's best book of 2016. As Close to Us as Breathing made the BuzzFeed books list of the 31 books you need to bring to the beach this summer. (laughs) Um, So just briefly, a few reviews in in part. Um, As Close to Us as Breathing, which takes its title from a Jewish prayer, is the kind of novel you sink in blissfully. It casts a spell. Elizabeth vividly paints a less congested but more restricted mid-20th century world, and her characters seem so real, so multidimensional, so sympathetic, even when when they mess up, you have to shake yourself back to the present each time you put down the book. The novel is about family ties, about belonging, about identity, and the responsibility to one's family and religion. It captures a time when it wasn't generally accepted for American Jews, however hopeful that the Nazis' defeat in the new state of Israel, to marry outside their faith, belong to certain clubs, or even frequent restricted resorts. (coughs) It was a kind of segregated ethnic tribalism that for us was part necessity, part comfort. This was a reflection of Molly, who is the main character and narrator in the book. She, this Molly evokes the insulated, rigidly segregated 
patriotic culture of her childhood, in which men attended morning minion services and women frantically prepared for Shabbos every Friday, rushing to clean the house, scrub the children, bake the challah, and roast the chicken before sundown. Elizabeth treats the summer of 1948 as if it were the hub of a wheel from which extends spokes of increasing significance through the power of a family disaster. Elizabeth is able to sweep us through the decades of change, growth, accomplishment, and frustration. We witness her characters responding to social change, their own maturing and aging, and their own realized or thwarted sense of destiny. The author handles the texture of Jewish family life with brilliance, authenticity, and a touch of wistfulness. And here's Polliner explaining her personal connection to Bagel Beach. My novel, As Close to Us as Breathing, is set in a real place, Woodmont, Connecticut, a small shoreline borough of Milford, Connecticut. Though the characters and events of the novel are fictional, Woodmont is a place loaded with family history, and it's the only place on earth where all four sides of my extended family, the physical and emotional DNA of my very being, intersect. With that astonishing depth of connection in mind, I dedicated the book to the family, Madskin, Madnik, Pashalinsky, Poliner, the living members of which surely hold Woodmont memories. I also dedicated the novel to my parents, one from Middletown, Connecticut, the other, that one in the back, <laughs> from Waterbury, Connecticut. They met as teenagers in Woodmont, their families traveling there for summer vacations, part of the crowd of Connecticut Jews who's funneled down to Woodmont and within Woodmont to the Jewish section, affectionately known then as Bagel Beach. Indeed, if it weren't for Woodmont and a little bit of it called Bagel Beach, I wouldn't exist. I grew up hearing about Bagel Beach and my parents' summers there as kids. My mother's nuclear family rented a cottage in the messy cluster of cottages lining the Bagel Beach shore that I describe in the book. Many times my mother has described for me the evening crowd at nearby Anchor Beach and the teenage flirting she did there. Each evening on the way to the anchor, she'd wave at her grandparents, one of the many elders invariably rocking on the porch chairs of Parsky's Hotel, their Woodmont home year after year. I've been told that my great-grandfather loved to spend his Woodmont days fishing, and for dinner my great-grandmother would cook the day's catch. Hotel life back then didn't mean luxury living. My father's family is even more entrenched in Woodmont than my mother's. My dad's maternal grandfather, a peddler, who traded junk as he traveled by horse and cart along the roads in, Mid in Milford and New Haven, somehow saved enough money to buy a cottage at Woodmont. And beside that cottage, a duplex, he built an additional two cottages. His vision was to have his family there together during the summers, and with eight married children, and the offspring of those eight, he needed the additional rooms. Many times over the years of my youth, I heard how amazing it was for the children of my father's generation to spend their summers at Woodmont. Freedom is the word most often used to describe it, and freedom is a word I've used in the book, though the way I've envisioned freedom for my characters, a deepening of authentic self, is different from what I've been told. 
For my dad and his first cousins, freedom at the shore meant whole days roaming Woodmont, swimming, eating three or four breakfasts a day, depending on how many households of relatives you visited, and for my dad and his pals, sailing wherever they wanted to go. One year, my dad's mother defied the family by buying, with her own money saved over many years, a cottage in a better Woodmont neighborhood, two houses in from where Clinton Street intersects with Beach Avenue. It's here, right in front of Graham's old cottage, that I placed the tragic accident at the heart of my novel. Because I knew the place, I could see it and see, logistically, how the accident would have occurred. But I wanted to mark the spot, too, not to sully it with bad luck, but to offer it as a precise location where the powerful forces of family collide, for better or worse. Throughout my childhood, I spent two weeks each summer right there at Graham's Woodmont Cottage. She ceded the place to our family just as soon as we kids got out of school for the year. There, in late June and early July, we did the ordinary Woodmont things, swam, tanned, walked, collected shells, played hopscotch in the sand. My father and brother were always sailing. My parents would talk of Bagel Beach and the hamburger joint Sloppy Joe's where they drank Razzline sodas, hallmark of another era. One year, I was an a young adult by then, I visited my grandmother at the shore. She was a widow then, and a woman who could never drive a car. But even without my grandfather's help, she determinately packed up her Middletown home, hired a driver, and made it to Woodmont for the summer. You know, she said to me, as we sat inside the cottage's screened porch, a lovely July breeze wafting past, I feel like I can breathe here. I really do. I never forgot those words or the way she did breathe then, serenely, with a sense of, how else to put it, freedom in her heart. She was her happiest self at the beach, or so I thought that's what she was telling me. And I liked her that way, breathing and joyful. And thus, in the strange way of art and life, the story that some 30 years later was to be the novel as close to us as breathing found its inspiration, though that day I didn't even know I'd be a writer. At that moment, I was just a granddaughter and a mixed-up recent college graduate, someone who secretly wanted to write, but didn't have the courage to stand up to the family and say as much. And it was good to see Graham, and so very good to see her in that space of her own, taking a lovely deep breath. So that's my uh, personal connection um, to the novel, and as I mentioned, it really starts to talk about um, what inspired me, uh, where, where the genesis, the first bits of ideas come from for the story. And it really came from thinking about a woman like my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother's not in the book, but a woman like my grandmother who felt good at the beach, um, just felt free there. And my grandmother couldn't drive, and so during the three months of the year that she was in Middletown, she was uh, dependent on my grandmother, grandfather to take her everywhere, to the grocery store and every other errand she needed. But at Woodmont, it would be different, and that's where I began to think about this. At Woodmont, a woman like that could have a different kind of experience. She didn't need to be driven anywhere because the butcher and the baker, Jewish butcher, uh, Jewish baker, were close by, and because there were peddlers driving past in that era, and peddlers that we don't see today, like the fish man and the fruit man. 
and as well as the uh, beloved ice cream man. I just call him a peddler. Um, and uh, I began to think about that and think, gee, gee, that's interesting. And maybe this kind of woman would feel good, but she wouldn't really have the words to know why she felt better. She would just describe it as, you know, like my grandmother did, this is a place where I feel like I can breathe. And um, so that interest in uh, a woman's autonomy, at least during the five days of the week where she uh, rules the roost, so to speak, uh, began to play in my mind. And I thought about those five days without the husbands and then the husbands coming back on the weekend and how um, the world kind of flipped back to a more patriarchal, traditional patriarchal culture. And that strange freedom that the women can't articulate, they don't know the words uh, for it. I would call it matriarchal. They don't have that language, but they just know something's different and it kind of feels good. So that was, that was really the beginning of the story for me. And then um, the family quickly got populated in my mind and I had many, many stories to tell. Um, so uh, so the, the process of the book um, is actually a long process. Um, it took six years to write. It was very, very messy uh, for a long time. Uh, that's how novel writing can be. Um, it's kind of a risky thing. You write and write and write, and you don't even know for most of the time, year after year, if it's ever going to work. So I often describe it as an act of insanity to write a novel because you're taking, you're investing so much, right? And you, and you really don't know till you're very far in whether it's going to fly or not. But um, but it did come together, and. Um, um, during that process, um, I began to understand who the characters were and how to structure the book. And I structured it with, um, with an eye toward, um, I, I knew about the accident at the heart of the novel. Um, the youngest child uh, is not killed in an accident, but killed because of an accident. And um, all the different family members, the three sisters who inherit their cottage, the other children, um, the, even the men, the fathers who are not there, even the uncle left behind in Middletown, they all have a way of thinking about what they did that day of the accident as important to how the events unfolded that day such that they live with a certain amount of sense of responsibility and even guilt about what happened. They're not really at fault, but they feel that way. And so it changes their life very much. So um, one character didn't have a direct role in what happened, and this is Molly, the 12-year-old uh, sister of Davy who had the accident. And I began to understand early on in the process, well, she'd make a great narrator just because uh, she was a witness. And, um, and so she's looking back. She's a 63- or 4-year-old woman looking back to 1948, but I give her the latitude to tell stories that come before that time period so that you can really understand who the characters are. And I give her the latitude to tell what happened after the accident up to the present when she's telling the story. The novel is so evocative of the time period, but how did it get its name? All during those uh, difficult six years of writing and rewriting and figuring it all out, um, I was calling the novel Bagel Beach. And uh, it's still Bagel Beach in my computer, my file. Everything about this novel is under the file name Bagel Beach. Um, sometimes I slip up and call it Bagel Beach. Um, and I had finished the novel, and it was time to show it to an agent, a woman who's my agent. 
And I did, and she got back to me and said, yeah, I just, just love it, it's perfect. We don't really need to change anything except the title. <laughs> and she said, um, that's because it doesn't capture the, the complexity and seriousness of the novel. It sounds almost comical, Bagel Beach. So, um, so we had about three weeks between the time she told me that and when I would, uh, when she would send it out to publishers. So I went through a lot of phrases in my mind. I was just going round and round and round and round with phrases and couldn't really land on anything. And for a while I thought, uh-oh, maybe that's a red flag. Maybe I haven't really written about anything at all. I thought it was a clue there was a problem in the novel. But anyway, um, the word breathing came to mind. Uh, I was playing with that word. Um, it, for those who've read it, you know that different characters feel like they can breathe in different places. And that motif is, for me, an important one in the novel. Um, it really reflects where they feel most at home in the world. And so for Ada Lipritsky, she feels like she can breathe at the beach, period. It's the whole beach. For Beck, the younger sister, it's her um, screen porch. It's that marginal space within the home. She's found a certain kind of freedom in her life, but it's, it's marginal to everybody else. So the screen porch is where she feels she can breathe. For Nelson, uh, Nelson Labritsky, the bachelor uncle left behind, his space is kind of a sad one, but he feels like he can breathe in the basement of Labritsky's store where he set up a record player and a rocker and he could just kind of be himself and reflect and, and feel things. Um, so that's Nelson's space for Mort Labritsky. Of course, it's the synagogue. So, um, so that work was important in my mind, um, and I still couldn't land on a title. So I, um, it was the fall, and it was uh, high holiday time, and I went to services, and it was Kol Nidre, and I'm sitting in services, and we came to a prayer, and the prayer was called, As Close to Us as Breathing. And I'm thinking, oh, that's very interesting. <laughs> and the prayer, we read the prayer out loud, um, and uh, I think it's the second or third line in the prayer, which is now the epigraph of the novel. You, you being God in the prayer, you are as close to us as breathing, yet you are farther than the farthermost star. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, it was really visceral. I got a chill. I just was like, oh boy. Um, this is how the Labritskys feel about this, this, this life of theirs, this loss. You, Davy, are as close to us as breathing. We're never going to forget. We're haunted by this. Um, yet, you are farther than the farthermost star. You are irretrievable. You are, you are gone. And... Um, and there was the word breathing in there, and there, there's, there's the word us, which I thought was so important because it's really a collective story. Here's a sense of the life of a traditional Jewish family. I was interested in exploring um, how, how the culture, and it's not just a Jewish culture, it's an American culture too, um, how this culture um, supported the people within it. Who, who is supported? Who doesn't feel supported? Can the culture, can a person, anybody in this culture, um, discover who they really are uh, within this culture? And um, I, I sort of set the characters off on journeys that I think of toward authenticity pre-accident. And um, it means different things for different characters, um, but that's what I was interested in. 
And I think that's where, um, you know, whether your culture for, for, I'm assuming for most of us here, it's a Jewish culture, but it could be any, any culture um, has, has rules, has codes of behavior and rules and everything else. And so it's a question that I feel is kind of a universal question. Um, it plays itself out in the novel in this Jewish culture, but I think it could be any culture. And then after the accident, um, the question changed for me, um, but it's still an important question. It's kind of at the heart of the novel. What happens to us as, as human beings, as people, if we ignore, abandon, uh, repress something really, really essential to our being, to our personal being? What happens to us if we self-abandon? And it's Beck who um, kind of voices this to Molly. She says at one point in the novel, Molly, you have to be yourself or something in you dies. And that's really, that's the whole story as I see it. Um, and uh, different people self-abandoned to different degrees after the accident. And I'm really, really interested in that. Um, so that was an interesting um, question to explore. And for me, it felt like an important question. Today, most of the small cottages of Bagel Beach are gone, replaced by larger, sometimes year-round homes. Damage caused by Hurricane Sandy has also hastened the rate of change as cottages are rebuilt on stronger foundations and much larger cottages go up. But the summer synagogue started by the founders of Bagel Beach is still there. In 2007, a new rabbi was recruited to build a year-round congregation. Although the oldest part of the synagogue suffered a fire in 2012, the congregation holds services in the social hall and is raising funds to rehabilitate the synagogue for future use. The congregation founded the Bagel Beach Historical Association to collect the memories and mementos from the heyday of its Jewish past. Visitors to Bagel Beach can glimpse a little bit of that past by standing in front of the Hebrew congregation of Woodmont then turning around to look across the parking lots to the sandy beach and the cold waters of Long Island Sound. Thanks for listening. We thank author Elizabeth Polliner, the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Hartford, the Bagel Beach Historical Association, and the Hebrew Congregation of Woodmont. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue and Patrick O'Sullivan. For more great stories of Connecticut history, subscribe to Connecticut Explored, celebrating its 15th anniversary at ctexplored.org. The fall 2017 issue is all about breakthroughs, from Connecticut's role in the development of the Muppets to 100 years in the freedom struggle to fighting for reproductive rights. We've got more inspiring stories for you at ctexplored.org.